Hello and welcome to GP Works, the podcast for and about general practice from the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Aileen O'Mara and in this podcast I'm talking to Dr. Michael Harty, who's the outgoing independent TD for Clare, and Dr. Liam Toomey, who was a Fine Gael TD in Wexford. What you both have in common is that you were both GPs in politics who went into politics to achieve change because of your GP background. And I'm going to ask the question, do GPs make good politicians and what can be achieved by being a GP in politics. Um, Liam, can I come to you first, maybe? And it's a while since you were in politics now, isn't it? Yes, uh, I left politics in 2016. And, and you asked the question, do GPs make good politicians? But I think that's the wrong question, really, because if GPs go into politics, they become politicians. And what they must become is politicians. Uh, because that's how you succeed, by actually learning how to be a good politician. And the fact that you're, in, you're a GP is almost incidental. It simply means you're bringing a new expertise or a different type of expertise to your role as a politician. Now, you went into politics. You started as an independent TD and then you joined Fine Gael and you went into that party mm-hmm. to achieve certain things, didn't you? Absolutely. I think, you see, it's, it's fine to be said as, you know, that I, I found myself when I was independent that I was, to some degree, uh, on my own uh, and that where I might have had very high aspirations, I found it was going to be very difficult to achieve them. So I joined a political party. A certain amount of compromises made because that's what politics is about at the end of the day. But I, some of the issues that I would have raised as health spokesperson for Fine Gael would have been getting a patient safety authority going, uh, having medical cards for all kids under the age of five. Um, and I had a big aspirations also that we would move into more of the disease prevention role that is really suited for general practice. Now, it has it, the first two have happened. Uh, the third one, I feel, is coming slowly. I think the chronic care management programme is that change of thinking that's going on uh, within the Department of Health, that general practice is the ideal place to really... Uh, protect the health of the nation and I always felt that that's what general practice was going to be really good at was making the changes for the future Uh, and other things as well like from the purely political point of view say for instance I brought forward legislation around uh, advanced healthcare directives that would not have been possible without having been a politician uh, because I had to go to every single political party Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, independence every single person bring them on board explain to them what I was doing and make it happen in the same way that Michael very much held, um, you know, as being in charge of the health committee was able to make Slanta Care happen. The role for politicians and the role for people like Michael and myself is to make sure that these things actually work out in the long term for patients. Michael, can I put that then to you? You've heard Liam there who did join a political party after being an independent. Do you think, uh, would you agree with what he said that being an independent meant you were out of the fold a bit? Yes, to a certain extent, uh, standing as an independent uh, has advantages and disadvantages. The advantages, of course, that you can think clearly for yourself and you can bring in new ideas. You don't have the support of the party as an independent. Uh, and you, you don't have the, the, the research capacity that parties have in looking at different issues. So th- there are pluses and minuses in in relation to being an independent. I stood as an independent on, on the issues of rural general practice and it broadened out then to the issues facing rural Ireland in general. 
when we set out uh, in our campaign to support rural general practice uh, in 2015, uh, the issue of uh, rural practice allowance and the maintaining of GPs within rural Ireland was a huge issue, as it still is today, and unfortunately that hasn't changed substantially. But uh, when the election came in 2016, we decided as GPs, uh, just activists, not uh, really thinking of politics in general, that we would put our name forward to uh, challenge the main political parties, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, on those rural issues. And out of that grew our campaign then, the No Doctor, No Village campaign, which expanded out into advocating for services within rural communities because we could see the fabric of rural communities unravelling the loss of post offices, the loss of local businesses, the rural depopulation, the lack of infrastructure, and general practice was part of that um, scheme which was unravelling. So entering politics from from that ideological viewpoint and that ideal idealistic viewpoint was a, a challenge when you when when we did actually get elected and uh, we I got elected um, to support and to advocate for rural Ireland and of course rural general practice. Uh, but it was a problem that uh, being uh, uh, an independent, you had to work very hard to get your voice heard. And I know you were chair of the Oireachtas Health Committee, but do you, you mentioned that word idealism, you know, being idealistic. Do you think that your idealism kind of wore off as time went on? Um, well, I, I, I didn't lose my enthusiasm, but uh, I found it very frustrating in the Dáil for the four years I was there because I found that the political system was very slow to change. And even though you presented new ideas and you presented them in a cogent manner, you didn't necessarily get the, the response that you expected. I suppose the achievement that I would feel I achieved was that um, introducing into the programme for partnership government when the negotiations were going on to form a government to get an idea into that programme of a 10-year vision for the health service, that we should not just move uh, from year to year, from minister to minister, or from government to government on health reform, that there should be a coherent plan which would be carried out irrespective of who was in office. And out of that then grew the Future of Healthcare Committee, which produced the Slant Care Report. And I think that is the policy achievement in health over the last four years, that there was a cross-party consensus on how we should uh, reform our health service and how it should develop. Unfortunately, it has been slow to get off the ground. Um, the implementation phase of Sloan to Care is, is slow. I think it is becoming imbe embedded in the discourse in relation to health reform that Sloan to Care is the way forward. It's trying to get the funding and get the real political commitment that's required to deliver such an extensive reform program as Sloan to Care proposals. But I think that was one of the substantial achievements of this government, of this uh, dole. But coming back to your campaign, No Doctor, No Village, how, how much progress did you actually make on that? The rural practice allowance is back. You know, there are quite a lot more money being put into practices that are working in deprived areas, for example. They're all good achievements, aren't they? Would you, would you say that there has been progress on the No Doctor, No Village campaign? Well, 
they, they are achievements. Of course, it was a, it was an agreement in relation sure. to yeah. um, three phases. One was to substantially return money taken from general practice uh, through through FEMP, 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 yeah. starting in 2010, which really crippled general practice. The, the FEMP reductions really stymied and stultified any development within general practice. So it was good that some of that money was returned in the first phase of that agreement. The second phase is to roll out chronic disease management, and that is in keeping with Sloan to Care. But I think it is putting the cart before the horse in that we really need an expansion of manpower and an expansion of resources in general practice to allow us to deliver to the maximum chronic disease management. And of course, the third strand of the agreement was to expand eligibility. And again, we cannot really expand eligibility unless we expand our manpower first. So I would have advocated with the Minister um, that in at least in tandem with this new agreement, there should be negotiations on a new GP contract because we are not attracting young GPs into the system. They will not sign the contract uh, which commits them to 24-7, 365, uh, take all the financial responsibility and all the administrative responsibility of running a practice on fairly limited resources and very uh, poor terms and conditions. So I think the new, uh, new contract is absolutely essential to allow Sloan to Care to deliver its full potential because Sloan to Care quite clearly says there has to be a transfer of care away from hospital-based services towards primary care, not just general practice. Of course, general practice is a component of primary care and a, and a very important component of it, but all other aspects of, of primary care should deliver services which are uh, unnecessarily delivered in our hospital system. And to, to do that, uh, to attract GPs into the service, to allow them to deliver the principles of Sloan to Care, we need a huge increase in manpower and our present contract is not going to do that. Um, Liam, can I bring you in there? I mean, mm. isn't it now accepted what, what Michael is saying, that we do need a lot more GPs and that there is an acceptance of that? We need an awful lot more GPs in general practice. We need an awful lot more nurses in general practice and we need an awful lot more allied healthcare professionals and administration staff. Do the politicians understand that? Not at all. I don't think even our own colleagues understand the actual extent of resources we need to put into the infrastructure of general practice. So it's not just the human resources that we just mentioned there now that we need to talk about. But in actual fact, we need to almost, what you say, socialise primary care. We need the health boards, we need the HSC, we need the Department of Health to actually build the premises that um, groups of doctors can work in. Because as Michael says, the young doctors do not want the financial commitment and the 24-7 commitment. So we need a new model. And I think even long before we start talking about a new contract, I think we actually need to look at the structure of general practice stands right now. And I think the main thing, I think that this, the, the HSC must be in partnership with the GPs and with the ICGP, and we must actually build the infrastructure mm -hmm. that these young doctors will go into. Because the only other per people who are investing in general practice in the in the big sense of the word, like when I started my practice, I bought a, a, I bought a house, I converted the house, I had one nurse, two secretaries and myself, no big deal. But nowadays it's going to be looking, we're looking at three, four doctors, three, four nurses, five, six administration staff, much bigger, investment is much larger. The young doctor who's coming out is not going to take responsibility for that one million investment. And I think this, this if the HSE stroke department health really believes that the primary care can work and primary care can deliver all the change that they want, 
they must stop treating us as people who just have a, a service level agreement with them and they must engage and engage us and put their money where their, where their language is. Which brings you back because it's the politicians who ultimately decide about resources. And the hospitals are shouting for resources, all the NGOs, all the, you know, the, 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 the organisations, every organisation, every union is looking for money. Uh, how do you think you can get that message across to the to the political parties? Like you say, you are a member of Finnegan, yes. but you had to explain a lot of time what general practitioners well, I spend, do. I spent more of my time, doesn't matter where I was, whether it was having breakfast, having a pint or inside in the chamber, you spent an awful lot of your time explaining what general practice is. It was a very influential position to be in because we were able to explain what we do. Uh, we weren't just like there was an, an impression almost that we used to just take, give out antibiotics and mm-hmm. refer people to hospital. And that was not what we were doing at all. We were able to explain that we can actually actively keep people out of hospital, actively keep people healthy and, and generally and contribute to the health of the nation. But we can't do it on our own. And that's the key point. If you look back on what the majority of GPs say, go back 20 years, look at the, the research that's done on this, go back 25, 30 years ago, the majority of GPs were single-handed. Not anymore. What is the interest of the young doctor in being single-handed? 2% of recent graduates want to be single-handed. It is, uh, unfortunately, whichever way you look at it, the single-handed GP is dying out. Mm-hmm. And we need to change the, the structure during practice pretty quickly so that we can continue that fantastic relationship and role we have with our patients and the absolute difference we make to the health of the nation and that is very much the job of of, of GPs the job of the ICGP to get that message out it is very difficult because there are so many different types of it's GPs it's a crowded space there's so, yeah. but there's so many different types of GPs what message are we going to give them we can't be talking about all the different types of GPs that are out there at the moment without confusing people and they'll stop talking to us. We are constantly, and this is something Michael understand perfectly well, within health services, they are competing agendas, they're competing special interests. We need to be doing an awful lot more research in general practice to show the value of general practice. And we need to make that very simplified so that we can explain it easily to the people that we're in trying to influence, whether it's politicians, civil servants, public servants, or the patient population. And Michael, do you, you know, listen to Liam there, do you think that the voice of general practice was being heard at government level? Uh, not really, uh, Aileen. I'm, I'm afraid it wasn't. And um, I, I did not succeed in getting the ear of uh, the Department of Health or the or the HSE. And just to go back to um, a point that Liam made there, what's really lacking in rural, in, in general practice is lack of data. There's a lack of data in relation to what we do. Everything is uh, surrounds face-to-face consultations. And if you take an average practice, if you have 30 face-to-face consultations a day, your practice nurse will probably have had 20. You've, you will have had telephone contact with the palliative care team, with the public health nurse, with the nursing homes, with hospitals, uh, with patients themselves making decisions which directly change th- their treatment, I- important conversations that take place. So even though you might have 30 face-to-face consultations with a GP, there may uh, be 100 consultations um, done on that day within the practice through the practice nurse through through various uh, telephone contacts so that's a huge amount of work uh, that is unrecognized and um which is which is under resourced 
so many GPs uh, go to their surgery at 8 in the morning they were probably there at 8 in the evening trying to catch up with their phone calls with their paperwork with their referrals with looking at mail all that is happening in the background a huge amount of work goes on in general practice which is not picked up by just face-to-face consultations and that, that data is not being gathered and that's where the real work of general practice is happening. And I, I do agree, I agree with, with Liam that there needs to be a new model of care. And through my four years in, in the Dole, um, I and my research assistant have looked uh, at different models of care uh, throughout um, other jurisdictions, other English-speaking jurisdictions in particular, and in Canterbury, in New Zealand, in the Veterans Administration in the United States, and in, in Scotland. They have realised the importance of very well-resourced primary care and they've put in models of care which have demonstrated within a year a reduction in hospital referrals, a reduction in A&E attendances, a reduction in A&E admissions. Uh, A huge amount of work can be taken away from uh, our hospital services if we have a properly functioning primary care service and these are uh, proven systems in those jurisdictions and we need to change our model of care which still really goes back um, to the episodic contract um, that uh, episodic illness contract that came in in the, in the early 70s. Of course, GPs have developed and are looking after a huge amount of chronic care, but to do that properly and effectively, they need substantial resources, uh, substantial increase in practice nurses, maybe uh, he- um, health technicians, for want of a better term, who can look after a lot of the uh, technical aspects of general practice and allow the GP and the practice nurse to become managers of patients rather than uh, dealing with everything that comes in the door. So there are models of care that are proven to work and until we get a new contract and adopt some of those new models of care, uh, we are just going to end up uh, in the same situation we are at the moment because our demographics are really against us and older people with multiple morbidity living longer are going to soak up so much energy that uh, general practice just will not be able to cope with it. So Michael, you you chose not to run for election again, so you, you did four years. Do you think, was it worth it? frustrating and my particular circumstances being a single-handed GP living uh, the best part of 300 kilometres from Dublin uh, and unable to source uh, regular locums, uh, it was very difficult for me to keep the practice going because um, of the difficulty in in, in getting locums and then fulfil my functions as a TD and chairman of the health committee, which took a substantial amount of time and responsibility. So um, if I was to stand in the election, which has just been held, uh, and if I was elected, which would have been a big if, um, I couldn't continue doing what I was doing. I, I would have had to resign my list here in Kilmehill, and the likelihood of somebody coming here is low, uh, to say the least. So I would have been... Um, uh, abandoning my community and uh, uh, going back on the, the promise that I made when I was elected that I would not uh, allow the practice in Kilmehill to, to end. Uh, so I had to make a choice and the choice was to come back into general practice. But you'll keep, uh, I would imagine, campaigning on the No Doctor, No Village 
campaign, will you? Yes, like I, 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 I build up a lot of relationships, as, as Liam would know, and he probably still has them uh, in, in, the, in the doll, where you can try to influence people and try to uh, introduce new ideas. And I hope to get back to doing a little bit of writing about my experience and how we need to concentrate on really developing our, our primary care services. So, yeah, I, I will continue to be an advocate. An advocate. Mm-hmm. And Liam, I could see you nodding your head when you're listening to Michael there. The pressures of keeping a practice going while mm-hmm. you're a TD is actually really, really difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I did 14 years. Uh, I actually thought it was a fantastic experience. I never gave up my membership uh, to the medical council, so I, I continued to work. I, I did every Monday in the practice uh, and, and recess times like Christmas and summer and Easter, I used to do an extra bit in the practice. I was very fortunate that a doctor came in to work with us in the practice at the time I went into politics, so it gave me more scope to, to, to kind of commit to politics. I completely understand what Michael is talking about. Uh, it, locums is probably worse now than it ever was in, in the period of time I was in the law. Trying to balance that juggling act of there's a huge personal commitment in general practice. It's it's about people. It's about interacting with people. Politics, same thing. It's about interacting with people. It's a twenty four seven people interaction. It's not nine to five. You no. you do need the opportunity to lock yourself away every now and again somewhere where people can't get at you uh, to kind of keep the mind from cracking up completely. But it is a hugely rewarding. I, I still see it as a positive experience, and I still see it even even now. I mean, I'm here now in UCD as an associate professor, and I actually find it still a hugely rewarding experience to be able to bring that political experience back into general practice, because I think we do need to learn to be able to talk to the public servants, to the civil servants, and to and to the politicians who who are there after us. Uh, to to show what 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 good general practice can do, and and Michael's four years experience inside the list house will not go amiss, big, and he and, and you, he knows that himself as well, because uh, we bring something quite unique to general practice, and we bring something quite unique to the communications with around general practice and about the future changes that are needed to, to be made. Right, well on that note we're going to wrap up the conversation. We could go on for another while and I think it's been hugely important to hear both your insights into your time as politicians and GPs and I think the point is I think GPs need really to keep telling politicians what general practice is, what GPs are doing and then to really advocate for general what, practice. What we need is we need a message, we need a narrative and we need to communicate that very clearly to everybody to show what the value of general practice is. Michael, have you uh, words to say here at the end? Uh, yes, well, Aileen, I, I suppose what I, I would really like to see is politicians getting down and speaking to people on the front line, not to just have the information they receive filtered through the HC and the Department of Health. Politicians who have power to change should really talk to people on the front line, nurses, doctors, consultants, junior doctors, all uh, allied health professionals, and ask them what is wrong with this service and how can you improve it. If, if they did that, they would get a far greater insight than reforming from a desk in, a, in, in an office in Dublin. Dr. Michael Harty in Clare and Dr. Liam Toomey here in Dublin, thank you both for joining us today. So that's it from this episode of GP Works. We hope you like GP Works and do remember there are more episodes on our SoundCloud channel on Spotify and on iTunes. Do subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss out and let your colleagues know. I'm Aileen Amara and thanks for listening.